had a couple of business failures that set me back, subsequently recovered from, but it taught me a lot about human nature and greed and just made that determination that um, I was just going to forget about all of that and try to get back to my roots. You pulled the plug on the big city lifestyle and went to the wilderness in the Canadian wild, built your own log cabin by hand. Michael was just watching one of Sean's YouTube vlogs about him melting snow. And if I remember correctly, he wasn't just melting snow. He was pouring maple syrup into it. You've chosen this to be your lifestyle. You've done that, simplifying life and becoming self-reliant. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. And we have a special guest that will be coming on shortly, Sean James, who is a YouTube phenom. He's got a couple of great, very interesting channels and vlogs that we are going to get into and behind the scenes and to his gear, what he uses, and why he's made this change of lifestyle and something that's been hugely popular across the globe as far as his content. But until then, guys, how's it going? It's good to see your faces. I get to see you on Skype. Our audio listeners don't. My privilege here. Michael, you've got a coat on. You're in Denver. It's spring. What are you doing? It's been chilly the last few days. We've been getting snow, and then we get a little rain, and then it'll snow. Nothing collecting. I mean, you wake up and there'll be an inch, but by the end of the day, it's gone. But it's just that it seems like it's returned to that old pattern that we used to get 10 years ago or whatever, where it's not. But I think you're a little different up in Ontario, right? It's been a lot different for you. Or Well, no, Canada's been going good. Alaska. When I was in Alaska a couple of weeks ago, the everybody's comment, Canada. it was like 50 degrees and there's people walking around in shorts and they're thinking it's summertime, you know? So I think we just flip-flopped. We're getting all that weather it's, that they would normally get. It's weird. It is weird this year. 2019 spring, winter transition through spring. What is going on? All right. When you guys were up in Anchorage, was it two, three, four weeks ago? Unbelievably warm. We were colder here. It's hot and cold flashes all over the place and not where we'd expect necessarily. So to see you with your bubble vest on today, I'm like, what are you doing? Here, it's pouring rain and, and the flooding that's going on in parts of Ontario this week are breaking 100-year records for really? floods. It's all over the news. Houses, thousands of houses are now submerged in water along the Ottawa River and into Quebec because of the rain, the runoff, unprecedented in over 100 years. So... You know, there was a flood, I think it was two years ago, and a very good friend of mine lives on the Ottawa River, and it hit almost at the 100-year mark. And he's like, oh, whew, didn't hit the house. We're good. We're safe. Now it's surpassing it just two years later. So it's been, it's been all over the map. Late spring, for sure, in Ontario, but lots and lots of water this year. So it's hard to map it out. I mean, when you guys were in Alaska filming Eagles, you know, the recent podcast, I was – it was – blew me away how much warmer it was and how much nicer weather you had there on the coast of Alaska than we had in Ontario. You know, we were still subject to snow and winter. And so it's been a weird spring. I went up to Algonquin Park to look for wildlife two weeks ago, and there was three feet of snow. It was like going back into February, which was fine. It was a beautiful day, you know, winter scapes. It was good, but not what I expected. I thought, well, there'd be patches 
just here and there in the forest shelter, but no, it was full on winter. And that was where we now, um, we're the beginning, we're in May, so that was mid-April, three feet of snow up there. But anyway, Algonquin is a weird little vortex that seems to be one of the coldest places in the winter in North America. It makes no logical sense to me. It should be up in Nunavut or Northwest Territories or Alaska, but Algonquin is, is cold. It's real winter still up there. That's my spiel. Well, actually, let me let me say one other thing. I've been uh, I've been out taking pictures lately. Whoa! Do you remember yeah. how to run your camera? Just. <laughs> I mean, I did some over the winter, but I've been so stuck with editing. It was it was nice to get out, and so I've done some pine martins lately, and I've done wild turkeys lately, and had success with both, and it's been a lot of fun. And what I'm excited, things are going to be gearing up soon for a lot of trips and adventures that we'll be sharing with our audience actually this year is going to be phenomenal for the destinations coming forward ron i want to ask you how it's doing in wyoming before i there's something else that just came to mind that i have to talk about but bring <laughs> us up to date my friend how's it yeah, going it's, it's been a little bit bipolar here too we had you know a good spring storm which is typically when we get our the majority of our snow so we got about between six and eight inches uh yesterday morning and then it snowed overnight again, not not much this time, but that snow is almost all gone already, just like a typical spring storm. It'll have warm air pushing in behind it, um, so all that moisture is hitting all at once, and just to the east of us in Nebraska, there were some devastating floods there as well, um, what, maybe a week or two ago. I don't, unfortunately, I don't think storms like this are going to help much because they just speed up the runoff and all that all that water just pushes downstream and and i think they're they're in for a long haul over there in eastern nebraska uh but you know talking about the issues that this weather brings up it's our our turkeys are about a solid three weeks behind everything has been just kind of delayed which has been surprising because we had some some warm weather, you know, in the, in late winter, and now that the spring has come, they've they've all just been kind of delayed with the the winds, the rains, the snows that have come, you know, in this early part of the spring. So it it actually is helpful because it's been a it's been a busy spring, so it's been helpful in that I still have some time to get out. So I'm looking forward. I I'm working on a, a video right now about workflow and looking forward to getting out and getting some turkey images and showing kind of the whole setup from setting up the blinds to you know getting in getting the shots or not getting the shots and then uh bringing those back and and finishing them up with the editing and and getting those ready for production man that is a serious workflow that's on the table so yeah we you know we've talked about start to finish so that's kind of what i'm trying to do holy smokes that'll be cool we'll a lot of people see. enjoy to see how ron hayes creates his content ron hazel ron hazel enjoy that too <laughs> <laughs> you were talking earlier that you were going to try this with the uh, sharp tail but you're not having a lot of luck because it seems like patterns have changed do you think yeah, that's the, the weather sharp tails i have no idea what the deal is i know that uh, the landowner where I go, so it's it's private land where I'm on, and they've had some issues. So they've done some things to 
try to get rid of some trespassing and things like that. Um, on the lek, there's a set of tire tracks where somebody got to it, kind of pulled into the edge of the lek. So right now, this lek is it's the same place that we filmed last year. So if you guys look back, um, you can see some video where where we shot and uh, where we podcasted from this last spring. It's a fantastic location. Um, the issue is they've all been on this knob. And the reason that they go kind of on this point, which has got short grasses, great place to photograph, great place to film. But this year, for whatever reason, I don't know exactly what it is, but they've spread out. So now instead of being in this 30-yard radius area, they're spread out over about 100 yards, and there there are birds everywhere. And so you just never know where they're going to decide to set up and fight. This year it's been typically behind sagebrush or some taller grasses, so the opportunity to photograph and video has been limited. Don Wilson, who we've had on the podcast, came up to photograph and video some sharp tail, and uh, I don't think she believed me that these things were in this short grass area because they were everywhere but. So, yeah, it has been a little bit frustrating. So switch gears. Now we're going to try it with turkeys and uh, get this get this video produced so you guys can see kind of start to finish how some of these things take place. So, yeah, the, the sharp tails have been less than stellar. We will say that. What about sage grouse? Sage grouse, it's, it's been crazy for sage grouse, too, because it has, every time that I've had the opportunity to get out, it's rained or snowed, and so the mud has been a, a limiting factor just getting to where these birds are. You know, the one lek that uh, Mike, you and I kind of went out and visited last year with uh, one of the biologists, that one I'm still holding out hope. They're still going because it's, you know, everything was delayed. But getting to them has been the, the difficult part because there are some places where you can't, you can't even drive with the amount of water that's out there right now. And that's not the case. Usually we're fighting dust at this point in time, but it is a pretty moist spring. That, that would be amazing because last year we took my truck a lot in there and, and I'm still pulling mud out of nooks and crannies on my truck <laughs> oh, from yeah. that trip. So if it's even muddier this year, I can see why you're not getting in there. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. I think that's one of the only car wash scenes I've ever filmed, Mike, was you cleaning your truck last <laughs> that's year. That's right. We did. We took we pictures of that. If I didn't wash it every day, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'd have been a rolling dirt cloud. Ron had written wild and exposed on the back window. <laughs> yep. I, think, I think we had a nap at how long it took you to, to get the mud out of that. And it's still on there. I'm still finding mud from that. And I've driven through rain. I've driven. I mean, it's just crazy. I can't imagine what it's like there now. Yeah. Well, they're still skiing in Colorado, and they said most of the skiers are going to stay open into the summer, or not most of them, but some of them. Past Memorial Weekend, that yep. Get an extra extra little payday for them. That's nice. Yep. And I want to add on too about the turkey talk. You know, turkeys. Some people think they're just turkeys, but they are. When you get up close and you and you film them, when they're strutting in their iridescent feathers, they are a beautiful bird and impressive. They, and, you know, I photographed one a couple of days ago. He was in full strut. He looked like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of turkeys. He had his feather 
poofs look like muscles bulging everywhere. And he's got, you know, the waddle coming down over his face. It's, he's full on business. But the colors on the head and through the feathers, they're really in springtime are a beautiful bird and really impressive how they can go from just being flat to when they poof up to being like five times the size. Lots and of we fun. do, ladies and gentlemen, that all have biological backgrounds. I'm not sure that feather poofs is the uh, <laughs> clinical term, but it is a good explanation for what we're what we're talking about. I'm I'm a visual person, Ron. I'm a visual person. <laughs> I have to go with the words that come to mind. <laughs> There's just something how they that just gets all that air under there, that volume. So poof came to mind. Poof. You can picture that, right? Poof. There, they're big. Oh, I was with you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> So something, you know, Raycroft and team has, I have to do a little explaining here because there's something we've talked about on previous podcasts that we have shared with our audience with enthusiasm and was, we were 100% genuine in that enthusiasm. And some of this may happen in the future at some point. We're not ruling that out. But we had talked about, we did one podcast uh, on tips and tricks and hacks about workshops and what to think about workshops or photo tours. And that kind of sparked a conversation on our doing workshops and photo tours, which we would be excited to do. We think we'd be very good at sharing our locations and our experiences and, and making for entertaining and educational workshop leaders. But when it came down to the crunch time for the ones that were coming up, we decided not to and to postpone and let me just take a moment to explain we didn't want to do this but we all have these trips that we do to these destinations i mean we didn't want it to to cancel the workshop idea but we have these destinations that we go to and a limited time budget either due to other places we have to be other commitments we have or just the fact that whatever we're filming only has so many days of peak activity that we have to make the most of when it came down to it, it made more sense to focus on our show, our Wild and Exposed podcasts, and our Wild and Exposed YouTube content, which, trust me, is going to be filling out in an impressive way as this year progresses. That's something that we're focusing on. If we took a handful of people on a workshop, then we would have to do and would do our very best to show them the trip of a lifetime. But that would mean we're not creating content for our primary audience on those limited number of days. And who knows what happens, right? That's wildlife photography. You can have something fantastic happen. And then these low times, we want to be ready when something fantastic happens to create content for our show for the other 98% of our audience that is not or cannot be with us on these trips for whatever reason. So for now... Our investment in our time is to grow the content, quality, and consistency of our show. And so we've, after thorough discussions, have decided not to do workshops for the time being, but instead make sure we focus on our travels to create the best content we can for all of you to enjoy from the destinations that we travel to. So we're going to focus on that going forward. We have a lot of itinerary mapped out for this year to very exciting destinations, some that you would not even expect, and it will unfold as the time goes on, and you'll hear about it in future podcasts. Did you guys want to add anything to my explanation? No, I think you summed no, it I up. Think, yeah, 
that summarizes it pretty well. And and workshops is something that I'm going to continue to do. I do them with the grouse, and, and I'll continue to do them in the future. But the idea is to make this the best possible show that we can. And part of that is, you know, when we're together, focusing on on that content. So let's do our, our pro tips for this week's podcast. Who's going first? Oh, I'll go first. Okay. So on. my pro tip is to get the blinds out early. So we all use different kind of photo blinds. I use different types of blinds for different setups. If we're going to, you know, a pop-up blind, it's not necessarily a photography blind. I use those for places where I'm going to keep them permanently. I stake it down because the winds here are terrible. Stake it down. It's it's not going to move, hopefully. Try to put it in a in an area where the wind's not going to catch it because I don't want somebody in the next county to find my blind, you know, a week from now. Uh, one thing that I ran into while I was trying to get set up for turkeys is, I, like I said, I'm trying to film some of this. So I've got a camera. I'm taking the pop-up blind, putting it up over the camera. Did not get the blind out early. So I'm dealing with a full, <laughs> a full winter of dust coming down full on the camera. So make sure you get the blinds out early. Beat the dust out of them because you don't want dust in your camera set up at all. That's a bad day, and it was. And I'll be <laughs> sending them, I'm sure, sending that camera in to have a sensor cleaned here in the very, very near future. <laughs> we're, we're here to live and to learn for you at Wild and Exposed. <laughs> That's not... Trial and error. That was not something that I anticipated, obviously. But I didn't. I was just kind of in a rush trying to get in between storms to get this thing set up. And trying to get the full coverage of uh, of content, of video content for that, and I created a little dust storm for myself. So don't do that. That's not a pro tip. That's an amateur tip. But it's yours for the taking. <laughs> well done. It happens. That kind of stuff happens to all of us, man. But it's a good pointer for sure. Yeah, Mike. How about you? So, I can't remember. Look, at, I just said so. All of us are saying so? so. So, so we got we were taking the task last week on Missy's editing of our production. You know, and we try to polish this and, and be as well spoken as possible. But apparently, we were saying so too often for Missy, and so she had to cut too many so's out of there. So we won't. So we won't say so anymore. So sorry, Missy. <laughs> Do you guys know what trackback is? Is that that's the one that you build, right? Inside your pack that the the plastic stuff with the Yeah, so we'll include a link in the in the show notes so you can see what it is if you're not familiar with it. But what it is is it's a it's a product that I was turned on to and they happen to be based here in Denver, so it was really cool that I could actually go right up to the factory and got a relationship with those guys. They've since been bought by Pelican. So they they're no longer here in Denver, but I still use the product and I think it's just one of those things to put out there because the cool thing about it is you're able to modify your pack on a regular basis by changing stuff around. You know how we all get these packs and it all has Velcro uh, dividers in there and you can, you can change it up. Well, it works, but it's not as good as if you have this Trek pack stuff because you can 
really tighten up all these areas to actually specifically fit a really small piece of equipment or fit a lens exactly with the velcro stuff and the the padded dividers they tend to sag and you know you just you know, i find that i lose a lot of space what i've been able to do is use this trek pack stuff to put into these packs whether it's a hard case or a soft case and really tighten up the way i pack stuff so i get a much neater setup and it's very modular so one week one week i may be out shooting video and the next week i'm shooting stills same pack same dividers but i just reconfigure it really cool product it's something that you should at least take a look at it's it's going to add to the value of your pack because this stuff's not cheap it's not expensive but it's not cheap but it just gives you so much more flexibility so if you're changing your pack up for different scenarios whether you're taking a long lens or your landscape or wildlife or whatever it just gives you the ability to really make, make your pack very modular and they'll fit different sizes of packs so they've got all kinds of different options but i would definitely check out that you've been using those for years right I've, as far as i can as long as i can remember that's what the inside of your pack looked like that black or dark gray with those the red corners right that you plug them into yep yep it's got a pretty ingenious little system where you just mm -hmm. pin it in and the outer edge has one thickness that is pretty rigid and then the all the dividers are a little thinner and you can just make it modular and they, when you buy a kit they actually send a little cutter that is specifically made to cut this stuff so they can send you long lengths so you can cut different sections to fit different configurations that you're going to make which it's it's pretty awesome and and trust me if michael morrow says it's good gear it's good gear <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, yeah. but I do use well, it in... You, the stuff you use has always been effective. And, you know, what I see, you know, you're into the gear. You know what, what works. And if you've been using it for that many years, then it's got to be good, man. Yeah, and like I so say... So you said Pelican bought, Pelican bought them? Pelican bought them, yeah. Which, it was always best in a Pelican case. From the big 1650s, which are the big, bigger than suitcase pack or uh, hard cases all the way down to the little ones that are going to overhead compartment. And I basically have every case that I have has it just because it's so modular. And then I can reconfigure stuff all the time. So to source this material then, is it something you can find through the Pelican website for our listeners? I know you put a link in. Yeah, uh, we'll put a link in there, but yeah, it's all. And it's unfortunately, it's not being manufactured here in Denver anymore. So it's all, I think it's, well, I don't know where it's coming from, but you can order... Right different configurations like you can say i've got a pelican 1650 case and they will send you that kit for that case and then, then you can make your configuration out of it but you could order extra pieces that like say you want a couple extra long lengths so that if you want to add twice as many dividers you can do that but like cool. i said it's not super cheap not super expensive but just makes it so much more flexible Good tip. I think I only Good said tip. so like 10 times in that one. I didn't hear any. I don't even hear that word. All right. <laughs> so there I, I, I just said it. This is bad. This is bad. I didn't realize how bad it was, Missy. All right. I was listening to another podcast and I heard them say, you do you. And I just stopped in my tracks and it just resonated with me. So my my pro tip for this week for our audience is you do you. And I'll explain. So follow your passions. 
And there's so many levels to this. Don't expect yourself necessarily, depending on who you are, you know, to be professional, to create outstanding imagery all the time, or to be killing it on social media. Baby steps, little steps, one step at a time, however you want to word it, you know, keep things in perspective and do what you love to do and what you have fun at doing. And I, you know, our content is is based on that. It's to have fun being wildlife photographers, caring about what we care about as wildlife photographers, and to keep it in perspective, for instance, about this subject is social media. Now, for me, I do a lot of charismatic megaphone images because that's my passion. And that's me being me and, and my putting it up on my social media feed, on Instagram, for instance. Once in a while, I'll throw something out from left field and put up a bird or, or I'll put up a landscape or I'll put up a picture from an adventure. Those photos do not get anywhere near the traction as my typical images. There's that pressure on social media to stick to that content. But if I put a caribou, a moose, a deer up, an elk, a bear, the things that I love most, and that's it, you know, that my audience or the, the followers or, or people that I communicate with on, on Instagram may enjoy that. But it's not just, it's not all me then. So it's good to put up some adventure images and some behind the scenes and some other things that, you know, I enjoy seeing songbirds. It's not hearing them in the spring when they return. It's it just lifts the soul. And to put one of those up on my page, I know I'll get a fraction of the number of likes. You know, I don't do a lot of photography of them, but occasionally I do. Just be you, you know, make room for that and don't let the algorithms of social media squeeze that out. So you keep the social media pages, you put some of that in there, but also on another level, think about it when you're in the field. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Keep it fun. Keep the adventure fun. Celebrate the successes, those good images that you do get digital cameras i mean we've got to love where we're at as as photographers the variety of equipment the capabilities are unbelievable out of this world futuristic what we can do with equipment now keep it fun and keep it you stick with your passion stay the course do what you want to do for subject matter any aspect of photography or adventure you know keep that in mind that that perspective so my pro tip for this week is just to stay grounded with that and to be you and who you are and create that content and stick to it. I like it. So this week's question of the week is to be truthful. It's for me. It's for me. I want to know more about neutral density filters. I am, you know, I, I know my gear inside and out for the tools, the tools that are my gear for what I need to accomplish. You know, um, my camera, my software that I use can do thousands of more things than I know what to do with. My workflow on Photoshop, I know what to do with to what makes my product where it needs to be. But I know there are hundreds of other tools that I'm not polished at. Same with the camera. There's lots to that. I'm a still photographer for the most part. But I, as I've said on, on many podcasts, am more and more interested in video because our equipment can now capture that so well. Let's tell both stories. What conjured this question up was today I was online researching 
neutral density filters and their relevance for the Osmo Pocket. I want to create more more blogging material and use the Pocket because of all the reasons we've outlined in other podcasts. But I don't have any filters for it. So I was trying to decide There's there are at least three manufacturers that seem to have great neutral density filters for the Osmo Pocket. DJI being one of them. And so I looked at YouTube, the school of YouTube, and I researched or watched the, the opinions, and, and there was clearly some bias for some of them. They were had one company obviously providing them, and they anyway, there was no winner from the YouTube videos that I watched as to which to buy. And this is new stuff. It's all come out within the past you know, a few months. So I did end up ordering the DJI set for no better reason than that's the company that made the pocket. But I just did it because I needed something coming along soon because I have a trip coming up that I want to use this on and have the filters if I need them. But I don't totally understand all of the things that these neutral density filters do for video. So I wanted to ask my colleagues to educate me and perhaps some of you onto the relevance of neutral density filters for video, the effectiveness of them, when to use them, and the different ones that fall into place. There you go. I'll give you my two cents because it's not going to take very long. This is definitely Michael's area of expertise. Uh, neutral density is, I use it primarily for landscapes uh, because we can control, you know, most of the time we can control the light for a wildlife image uh, by making adjustments to the ISO uh, aperture and our shutter speed. Uh, for landscapes where sometimes, you know, you want that real soft water in a, a landscape image or you want that waterfall to look nice and silky smooth, you you don't want, you know, a thousandth of a second image, obviously. It's going to freeze that water. So to make it nice and silky smooth, you need to cut the light significantly and sometimes even more so than what you can just do by dropping the ISO. So I'll use neutral density filter so that, you know, instead of, a, you know, even a half a second exposure, I can go a full minute and all that water is going to be nice and silky smooth. You're going to have that effect that you want your foreground, obviously, you know, whether it's rocks, trees, as long as the wind's not moving it. Your foreground is going to be exactly how you wanted it to be or exactly how you envisioned it. But that water is going to add another element to the image. Also, you know, the same thing like Harlequin ducks. There's a couple spots in uh, Yellowstone Park where the Harlequins will perch and, and sleep on rocks. So you can get this nice, silky smooth water. But again, you've got to cut the light significantly because you've got a white area around. You're just going to blow that water out if you slow your shutter speed down too much. So I'll use new, neutral density filters there as well. But the usage for wildlife is really limited. And my issue is where I've gone away from just that drop-in 52 millimeter that you can use in your, in your long glass. So now I'm using a zoom lens and neutral density for, you know, the 200 to 500 that Mark and I, you got, you and I are both using for most of our wildlife images that's got a 95 millimeter objective and it doesn't have a way to drop in a, or throw in a drop in filter. So that's a whole different ball game. And it's something that again, Michael deals with, with the video and I'll let him take it from there. But that's kind of the, 
the couple uses that I've come up with now doing the video where you've got to slow down your frame rate, sh- slow down your shutter speed. That does present, present a whole new set of problems, I guess, so to speak, as far as light. It's the exact same thing. You're just cutting the light. And so on video, the school of thought is, is you want a 180 degree shutter is what they call it. So if you're going to shoot a frame rate of 24 frames a second, your shutter speed should be at 48th of a second. And that's what you want to keep. Then if you want to go further and have this extreme depth of field, then the only way you're going to get to 5.6 or F4, or if you're shooting at 2.8, the only way you get there is to cut that light. Because if you're shooting at a 48th of a second, you're letting a lot of light in, right? So your aperture, if you didn't have neutral density, would be up around 22 or whatever it's going to be. So what you want to do is you want to put a neutral density on there to make all these, all your adjustments line up so that you get what you're after. If I'm shooting slow-mo, 120 frames a second, then I'm going to go with a 1 240th. And so in the red camera, I can set that up to be automatic. Whatever frame rate I choose, it just sets up that 180 degree shutter. But I still have to manage it with neutral density to get to the aperture that I want. And this, everybody's, well, just like when we shoot wildlife, we always want a 5.6 or, you know, a 4 or 5.6, depending on the quality of your lens and what it, how it performs at those, those apertures, you can totally put all the emphasis right on that animal. And that's the same thing in the video. Except for with the video, with the 24 frames a second, why you want that is because it gives it that filmy look. And that's what everybody says. It just goes to that filmy look where... Not every, if you pull the frame out of video, a single frame out of video, you would, there you go. Oh, you guys can't see this, but <laughs> Mark and uh, Ron are playing with the, what do they call it in Skype? Blur my background. Yeah, they'll blur it for you. <laughs> you toggle that on your FaceTime HD camera and it looks like you are a little puppet on this big blurry background. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, but it's putting all the emphasis right on you, which is exactly what we're trying to do in the in the when we're taking stills. But with video, we're also we want that look, but then we also want to have this filmy look which is very soft. You're not soft. You still want a sharp image, but you just want this look that film gives you. The what you want to keep in mind with neutral density. So you all you've used the variable neutral density filters, or you know what one is. So it's basically a filter you can put on the end of your lens, and you can twist it and dial in the amount of neutral density you want. Essentially, that's two polarizers, and so it'll it'll twist and cut the light as needed. And some of them don't perform very well at both ends. If you have it wide open, or if you have it really shut down. And then the other problem is, is you can get all kinds of funky light diffraction because you basically have two pieces of glass that are twisting on top of each other, which is over your lens. So all this glass is, you know, you just got a lot of glass in front of that sensor. Your best bet and the best image quality you're going to get is to use a straight up neutral density screwed onto the lens. You don't want a variable if you can get away with it. Variables are awesome because you can constantly adjust but that is not always going to give you the best image quality. What I do on the video camera, if I'm using a matte box, and if you're not familiar with a matte box, we can put a, a picture in the show notes, but it's essentially a box that sits in front of the lens, and it has a drop-in filter. So you take 
a four by five drop-in filter or a tray, a filter tray, put the filter in the tray, drop it into that matte box, goes in front of the lens. It's one, one neutral density setting, whether it's an ND2. They, so they have ND numbers. So you got ND.3, 0 0.6, 0 0.9, 1.2. And all that is is the number of stops that you're going to be cutting. So if you know you're going to be shooting in a specific light configuration, it's very easy to choose the right filter. What happens though, is if you put one of those on there and you're out shooting and then the light changes significantly, it's not a quick fix. And for wildlife, we're always wanting that quick fix, right? So the variable neutral densities work for that way better because you can make that adjustment really fast. Just if you go with a variable, you want to spend the money. So you do want to spend three, four, $500 on that filter because you're going to get a much better quality filter than if you go buy a you know, $40 version on Amazon or whatever. So just know that you want to spend money if you're going to use a variable. But if you want to be, if you want to get the best image possible for video and stills, use a straight up, do a, an ND 1.8 will get you six stops. So you can cut six stops with that. An ND 1.2 will get you four stops. ND.6 gets you two stops. So you basically just and know what you get. And I carry, so on the red, I use the drop-in filters to go in the big glass. And I have several drop-in trays, and I just have different. I have 0.3, I have 0.6, and I have, I think it's a 1.2. And I'll find myself going to that 1.2 all the time just to cut the light to get to where I want to be. That and when we just for everybody that doesn't know, when we're talking about stops of light, one stop of light, you're cutting the amount of light that hits your sensor in half. So, you know, every time you take a stop away, you're you're doubling the amount of light, and that's how you end up blowing images out. And so Michael's got to deal with that all the time with video. Try to get that cut and get it get it set so the exposure is perfect. A lot of video cameras come with built-in ND. And you just flip a button and it'll put one, usually they'll have three levels, one, two, and three, and you can just visually see what it's doing. That's awesome. If you have a camera that'll do that, that's great. It just saves all that time. But most of these newer cameras, like the Reds and the Aries and the, the even DSLRs, there's no built-in ND at all. So you've got to put it on the end of the lens or in your filter tray or on your drop-in filter and accomplish it that way. What I do with the Osmo is the cool thing about those filters is they're magnetic. So they're pretty fast. You just click it on and you're good to go. The problem is, is they're so stinking small. Mine came with a lens cleaning cloth because you can't hardly grab them out of the little case they come in without getting fingerprints all over it. So it came with a lens cleaning cloth, clean it off and then you click it on there. But what I find with that is I bought a filter kit with my Osmo pocket too. I just, use the darkest one all the time unless i'm going to shoot early in the morning or late in the evening i just leave that dark one on there and let the camera you you can go in the manual settings and set it or you can just let the camera i find letting the camera that little pocket since it's more of a run and gun thing and we're not going to sell an image to a magazine or we're not going to put an image on the wall if it's off a little bit i don't really care i'm more interested in telling that story or showing what we're showing so just leave that darkest one on there and go for it and then i think that pack that you were looking at actually comes with polarizers too 
was it was four ND filters with the DJI one. There were other the other two had I think six, but they had the variables in there as well as the straight up NDs. Right. Um, but I just went with the company that made it. Just I couldn't find a straight up answer or review that that convinced me otherwise. But I mean, they may be great products. Uh, the other ones, but that's good to know. But for that price point, then the variable may not be fantastic. I don't, you know, without experimenting. Yeah, you just and this play. is all about vlogging. We're just creating our YouTube content and wanting to be able to tell the story to our audience with the Osmo Pocket. But I wanted to be able to work in any type of lighting condition with it, so to carry these along. And I did read um, or did see on one YouTube vlog that this fellow he uses it, the neutral density on it all the time. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously in low light, it wouldn't require it, but I find something to keep in I, mind. When I set mine up, once it's past 8 o'clock in the morning, I leave it on all day too. Same thing. I never take it off, put it in the case with it on. The only thing is, is if you're going to shoot late in the evening, you want to make sure. The one pocket is amazing little camera. I am blown away by the image quality. The one downside is low light. It does. It's bad. So you don't want to have a neutral density on there if you're in low light because it's just going to, you'll have, it'll look like a beach with the amount of grain that is on, on your footage. Right, of course. But with, if you pop it off in low light, how, I mean, I haven't played enough with it to know yet. Um, how, how did it fare without the neutral density in low light? It's good to a point. You know, you're not getting, okay. once the sun set, it's not great. Okay. It's, but it's perfectly fine for us for telling a story. You sure. Know, it's not sure. about image quality at that point. It's more about the story. So it's fine for that. But I am amazed at the image quality. When you have good light, it is quite. The, I, I'm just blown away that something that small can produce an image that that is that good a quality. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it'll be our go our go to. And 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 you know this we're not sponsored by DJI or anything. This is just some cool gear that we're excited about. And with the trips that we have coming up and the storytelling that we are really focusing on these tools will be should be really effective for us once we get out in the field yeah so small and yeah. so so quick user friendly you can't go out these days you got to have a gopro you know to do what we do you don't have to have anything mm -hmm. but for what we do a gopro an osmo pocket some sort of traditional dslr video camera and you there's not much you can't cover there's not much you can't and do Four drones. And four drones, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to have the, the obligatory drone shot to start the piece out. <laughs> Provided you're not in a national park. And get this, I got my little email today from the FAA telling me that my license is up. So guess who gets to go take another test? Every two years, you have to take that test to get approved. So I've got about three or four days worth of Nothing but studying FAA law, or I don't even know, flight school. Mm -hmm. Essentially, yeah. Uh, it's good. I'm glad I, yeah, I'm glad they have it that way, right? Because those are pretty dangerous little things if you don't have them in the right hands and if you're not following the rules that have been set forth. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, need, you need to be respectful, and there's certainly some safety precautions everybody needs to be aware of. So it's a good system. And we've seen firsthand, I mean, last year with Bears, somebody was not, somebody from somewhere else 
on the globe was running a drone, but they didn't know any better and but shouldn't have been either. So right. we use it we use it for B-roll to tell a story about magnificent landscapes or, you know, it's kind of cool if you're walking along a cliff and there's a precipice, but you're not near any animals and it's a place you're permitted to fly to have it just come up from the cliff or, you know, our guest on today's podcast, Sean James, he uses a lot of drone footage to telling his story about where he's built his off-the-grid, self-reliant log cabin in the Canadian wilderness. And I love how some of his videos, he starts with this great aerial perspective. His video came up, the one he launched this week. You start with the grand landscape at, at spring, winter transitioning to spring, and he brings the drone down slowly right to the cabin. You don't even see it until it emerges, right, as it drops. So it's kind of cool to be able to do that. When you know, It's all new, and, and to be able to do that, for the price point that people can for drones now for storytelling. Can I give you a little pro tip on how he did that? I don't know if you do. Everybody knows <laughs> I got to do a search YouTube and you'll find this. The way to get it so perfect like that is you reverse the footage. You start at the cabin and you ah. go out and then when you edit it, you just reverse it. So it looks like you're like this precision pilot that is taking this drone into the front door of the cabin when in fact that's where he started and then just went out. But that's a trick. Sweet. I mean, you got to use that. I know I couldn't if I fly a lot and I don't think I could. I You could with enough practice. But if I just rolled up to a spot and said, OK, I'm going to shoot this shot, I would reverse it 100 times out of 100 just because, you know, you can nail that. I see it on Discovery Channel a lot. If they if, with Deadliest Catch, they run that in the intro where you'll see these guys It's like on the Gold Rush show or something. They're standing on their rig or on some river or something and it's this real dramatic shot of this person and then they fly away and you know that that was all a reversal they it's it's pretty cool i'm glad i listened to this week's podcast right i'm not <laughs> why not what's going on over there <laughs> now i'm just going to be all melancholy because i know these guys cheated <laughs> <laughs> it's just creative license my friend reverse the footage Creative license. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a couple of other videos because I was doing a lot of research on the Osmo Pocket this week. And there's several out there where guys are like, this is how you shoot the Osmo the best, the Osmo Pocket, for film or cinematic look. And I learned a lot just watching these guys with, you know, someone that's played with it and they've just made that their focus. I'll never make it my focus, but I feel like it's a really interesting, important tool so to listen to these guys that have just been up one side and down the other to figure everything out, there's two or three tr tips and tricks in there where you'll be, you'll be very intrigued by, oh, I'll try that or I'll give that a go. And the wheel does make it a different tool, Mark. Yeah. You'll be, you'll be happy you threw that on there. You know what the smoking tool is, is that Bluetooth. Bluetooth, yeah. Because then there's no wheel. I mean, you just watch your phone. So if you can put it on a tripod or put mount it to your window or mount it on whatever and just sit there with your phone and that's money. Yeah, I haven't tried the Bluetooth yet. I haven't been in the field with it since that stuff came, but I, I did order the clamp to put on the on my backpack strap. So for hiking time lapse stuff, I think I have to do some digging. I'm pretty sure I have a GoPro Pro harness that might mount it in the middle like you had, but I don't know if it matter if it was on the strap. I don't um, think. I think you just have to try it and see what works. If you flex yeah. your pecs when you're walking, it's probably not going to be good on the strap. Pop, pop, pop. <laughs> I see. Yeah, well, puffy. I'm not that even going to touch that one. It's, yeah. The puffy feather Too many thing. things I could think of. 
<laughs> Poof. There goes Mark's pet. That's it. Poof. Poofy parts. I'm watching too many turkeys strutting lately. <laughs> it's spring is in the air. I think we, we better get Sean. We better get Sean going. Well, welcome to the podcast, Sean James. We're excited to have you on. And we were talking just beforehand that Michael was just watching one of Sean's YouTube vlogs, which are off the charts about him melting snow. And if I remember correctly, he wasn't just melting snow. He was pouring maple syrup into it. How was that, Sean? There goes the keto diet, maple syrup, maple syrup, syrup Does that fall in the keto diet? Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I have a friend who did it, but I don't know all the specifications of it. And he was, it was amazing what he was able to accomplish on it over a matter of four or six months. But that aside, your story is one that is so interesting because so many people get caught up in society. We have our to dos, we have our bills, our bills get bigger, our wants get bigger for the most part in society. And as wildlife photographers, and nature photographers and outdoors people, we are so drawn to nature. We spend as much time as we can there. We're passionate about it. We want to be out there. But you did something even more, and you pulled the plug on the big city lifestyle and went to the wilderness in the Canadian wild and built your own log cabin by hand and are getting in tune with the wilderness, or you always have been, but you've chosen this to be your lifestyle. You've done that. What was it that made you flip the switch, if you don't mind me asking, to switch from that lifestyle of work, 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 work that so many people get caught up in, you know, raising families, mortgages, needing new cars, the latest flat screen TV, all this stuff. Some of us like the latest camera equipment to <laughs> bushcraft and really, you know, simplifying life and becoming, as, as your show is, self-reliant. You know, a few, well, I got, um, and I do talk openly about all of this on, on both my YouTube channels. Um, it's one thing I've discovered is that the more I'm able to speak freely and speak about my trials and tribulations as well as my successes that um, I'm able to connect with people a little bit deeper. And one of those things has been I've had had a couple of business failures that set me back that I, I you know, subsequently recovered from, but it taught me a lot about human nature and greed and and uh, modern society and all the the uh, difficulties and the um, the vices, I guess, and just made that determination that um, I was just going to forget about all of that and try to get back to my roots. You know, going back to my early twenties, I actually had bought a property, bought a property actually in mid, uh, central Ontario, Canada, in my mid-teens with help from my parents, and I kind of I built a little cabin and I'd just get there on weekends, but early 20s i actually said after reading david throw and and uh two little savages by seaton and a couple other things that i was going to give it a try myself so i actually built a, a little cabin and moved into it in my early 20s as well and you know done uh, the attractions of, of modern society and the necessity to pay my mortgage and things like that got me back on the grid for a while and uh, just never forgot that experience and how, how uh, deep a connection I made at that point. So, um, you know, raising a family and happily married and everything else, I just felt that need after experience that corporate life that uh, I wanted to get back to that, back to that simple life. And your first cabin was am. impressive. 
for that time too. I mean, I've seen a couple of old photos of it that you've put up on your on your feeds, you know. So it's it's good to reflect back on that. And for this for the sake of educating our audience, I mean, you are a YouTube phenom, and what's interesting is is the quality of show that you put out. No, seriously, that that you know you have. Well, when we met in person a few weeks ago, I, I if I remember correctly, you had like seven hundred and seventy five thousand uh, subscribers to your primary YouTube channel, which is awesome. And it's just, it just speaks to how this resonates to our world, you know, to get back to the simple things in wilderness and nature. And again, what ties into our show is the quality of show that you're putting up on YouTube. It's phenomenal. You involve drones, you do, you have all kinds. I mean, I'm curious to know how many, um, clips you put in each vlog. But what I wanted to point out quickly, though, the subject that I first brought up was, you know, over three quarter of a million subscribers a few weeks ago, and now you're over 800,000. It's amazing to see that growth and obviously resonates with a lot of people around the globe, not just in North America, right? So you're, the product that you created, mm-hmm. when we had our, our time together in Algonquin Park uh, to meet a few weeks ago, you know, you told me to my shock that you do all the post-production yourself too, that you manage all of that in your show is is really well done. So I, you know, we're very curious to, and interested to talk to you about all of that. You know, when you got into drones and and how, I mean, the perspective those lend to a wilderness shows phenomenal to see that aerial perspective, and then the equipment you're using to create your vlogs, and you know what you're willing to share as far as you know why it resonates with people. I mean, I feel it, and and I can certainly give my take, but I think our audience would prefer to hear yours because it's, it's your show and and why it's been successful and why it's been your passion to want to share that with people, not just go and do it, but to, but to share it and, and, and how it's done, the mm-hmm. skills involved, right? Just, just real, real quick before you get into that. And I, I don't mean to throw a wrench into that question, but going back to your self-reliance, I mean, as a, a in your late teens, you bought your first property. So you were pretty self-reliant right out of the gate. Correct. And now was it, was it your interaction with people in the business world that kind of made you decide this is going to be my lifestyle permanently, not just a, a weekend thing? Well, I think go, to go back, right back to my teens, like 17, I worked in uh, construction on a roof, um, making pretty good money just in the summers. And that's what I bought that property with $16,000 for two acres on an island. And uh, I don't know, I, I grew up in a you know, relatively small town north of Toronto and and got out there into the forest that we could walk to all the time. And if friends wouldn't join me, I'd go out and do it myself. So I think the inclination or the it was in my personality to be sort of reclusive, but also just very connected to nature very early. You know, I'd, I've been a sportsman since, uh, you know, as long as I can remember. I've seen pictures of me when I was three or four years old holding up fish with my parents and camping and stuff. So, so I think it goes back to that. So I think to when I made the determination to have a family and can sort of live a modern life, I put every, everything into that as well and, and had some success and, um, you know, raised a, a family happily, still, still very close family and getting back to nature was just, um, I think probably partially because I fulfilled my familial obligations to my, to my family at that level. And they, and they're very supportive and they see that I, they've always known that that's where my heart is and they're very supportive of me getting back to that. So yeah, um, you know, probably instigated by the, the, 
want to say the corruption or at least the um, unnaturalness of a modern uh, city living and urban living or urban uh, uh, career. Yeah, it just um, just become very disenchanted with it. And and I realized that uh, if I and, you know, spend my last years in that, I'll have I'm somewhat an unhappy man. So to get back to doing what I truly love to do has been been a priority for me. That's excellent. So what was it that made you want to do a show on it versus just doing it? I mean, what was that? It's great that you share this with the world because it inspires people and it teaches people. It's the how-to. And in those who can't do it, just like our show, I mean, our objective is to take people along on our adventures and to share that with them, to teach those who want to do it how they can do it effectively. And for those that are unable due to whatever limitations it might be in their lives, they can feel that experience through us on our show. And I think your channels do something very similar by taking them into the Canadian wild where you live this way and you share that through your show. What was it that inspired you to create this content and make it, I mean, it's so good that it's successes. I mean, bigger than some networks out there. High five. (laughs) It's a bit, um, it's, I mean, Obviously, there's some uh, trade-offs. You want to be self-reliant. You still need money in this day and age. So uh, I've, I've been entrepreneurial probably since my early th- – I've always been interested in kind of earning income in, in unconventional ways in order to fuel my passions or to free up time in order to do that. So you know, when I started my first business in my early 30s and then uh, went full-time into business in my mid-30s, it was not because I had illusions of taking over the world or or living this extremely expensive lifestyle. It was always to create more freedom. So this, uh, I knew that in this day and age with social media becoming more and more important, that I need to create a brand and start building my personal brand and, and then figure out how am I going to monetize this lifestyle that I really want to live. So it uh, it kind of just fell into place. I was doing different things. I was you know grew my Facebook uh, account first, and then Instagram, and then YouTube it was really late as far as um, taking off and becoming sort of globally uh, interesting to people. Uh, but I, again, I was just building this brand, and I thought at some point I'd love to be able to monetize this so that I could actually go off grid and, and have some some financial support. And uh, once I it's funny when you start following your passion and putting everything into it, and I tend to, to, to do that over the years. I put all my energy into whatever project I'm working on. But when it's something I found that I'm truly passionate about, I'm able to do that. I mean, like you said, I, I edit all my own videos after uh, filming most of it myself and, and creating the content or creating the things that I'm doing. It's because I'm so passionate about it, doing it. I don't care if I'm working 100 hours a week. I'm able to accomplish more because I'm loving every minute. If I wasn't filming it, I'd still be doing it. But I think it's that. that, That's probably what uh, caused me to create that brand, was just to eventually try to find a way to monetize it so I could go off-grid with it. Well, it makes sense. You know, it doesn't, when it's your passion, it doesn't feel like work, you know, most of the time. And that's that's Mm -hmm. the same for me. I mean, my favorite time is when I'm in wilderness photographing or filming wildlife and you know it's my job and I I'm so grateful for that but I don't feel like it's work when I'm there 
So, you know, if you find your passion and, and those that are lucky enough to do so and have the flexibility in their life to do it, like, like you have, uh, that's awesome. So can we dive into to how you create your vlogs as far as what gear you're using and uh, do you have like two cameras set up or do you do one or sometimes two? And I know the drone stuff, it, you know, intrigues me, especially where your cabin is. It's awesome country to document with the drone. Was that something you've incorporated for a long time or is that new? It's been a few years that you've been creating. Been yeah, I started uh, 2015. I think I uploaded my first video, just canoe tripping in Algonquin and around the uh, the region. Um, my wife does um, a lot of research. We, we start. We bought a cameras. Like, really couldn't even turn on a camera. Anything. Never use anything but automatic. But up until about three years ago, my wife bought a Canon 5D Mark uh, II. Mark three, and uh, oh, if it's Canon, we can't, start oh, sorry, we can't go any further. I didn't know it was Canon. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, that's just you. I, I think one yeah, of you guys use Canon. Don't you? Yeah, they do. I remember they did, or they do, and we have many people on who shoot Canon. I'm just teasing. Love Canon out there for all that use it. Great <laughs> brand, just like Nikon. And there's so many now. That's cool. Okay, please. Sorry to inter interrupt. So you got? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I mean. I mean, I think the proper response to that, but for anybody, is that it really doesn't come down to the camera gear necessarily. You can do it with anything. So, my wife taking those uh, some photographs. We were t took all the typical wildlife photos that that we had access to, but really the uh, the uh, videography was not. It's not great on that camera. It doesn't track very well. So I ended up buying a Canon 80D, I guess, three years ago. Um, before that, I was just literally using a Sony action camera, like a, like a low-end GoPro to film all my videos. Um, but once we um, started getting more and more into this, I started doing some, some uh, um, articles for Ontario Tourism and, and, and uh, taking photographs as well for those articles. So I needed to upgrade my equipment, went to the Canon 80D, um, very, very good video camera for vlogging type stuff the type of stuff that i do and um and then just we both got into it we both became passionate about the uh, photography and videography as well so my wife uh, did the research and we ended up buying a, a maverick pro uh, dji maverick pro drone now she operated that um for the first two years i, I was like i was totally hands off it was a little intimidating to me but lately i've been flying it myself and um, it's just, it sets the scene, you know, part of, it's hard to capture fully what I'm doing because I am filming uh, almost everything myself and you get these static images where I set up a camera and then I walk into the scene and walk out. So I'm not able to use the low f-stops that I'd like to be using to get better bokeh and, and more subject to, in, in focus because I'm walking in and out of it so much, I can't check it. Um, but that drone footage just puts the whole scene into perspective and um yeah it just completes the picture it's it's become a passion of mine as well like i love the editing as much as i do almost uh, the lifestyle does that make the the day-to-day -day tasks though it kind of adds another full yeah. element of because you you don't just get to plan on making the syrup or or building something onto the cabin you got to figure out how you're going to get each shot as well how do you lay that out that's yeah, very challenging. Probably triples the time it takes to do anything. To answer your question too, Mark, um, um, on the equipment, 
I I use a so I have the Canon 80D, but I don't use that typically anymore. Um, what I'm finding is that I do a lot of low light videographies, especially inside the cabin. So I've needed to go to a full frame. So I have a 6D Mark II, which is full frame, but very similar specs to the Canon 80D. So great autofocus, especially. Um, and then I have a 1DX Mark II for interior work and for more B-roll. So that I'll you know, film, like we'll go out and just film uh, slow-mo and, and uh, uses better better images uh, but it but because it doesn't have a flip out screen it's very difficult to use it for vlogging or anything that i can look in the, the flip out screen and see myself in so that's challenging but uh, what it comes down to is that because i'm trying to maintain that um sort of hands-off feel that the audience gets from watching me i can't i don't like like to show the camera equipment so i can't use more than one camera for each scene because that other camera ultimately ends up in the scene somewhere. So I'm literally moving the camera. So I'll do, Mark, you alluded to this earlier, the number of, of clips in a, in a typical video is probably about 250. And I'll typically have several hours that I'll whittle down to about 30 minutes. So that is literally just moving the camera that many times myself, that one camera. That takes a lot of planning and, and artistic perspective. There's a talent there, right? Because you know you map. Well, here's a question. How often do you map out what you're going to do on that vlog? You know you're going to make this or construct this, so you have an idea of where you're going to place the camera and, and shoot it. But do you often encounter yourself changing that throughout, saying, oh, you know what, this is happening, and come up with a new angle perspective? I mean, I've noticed that in some of your – well, I mean, they're all – They've all been great vlogs, but you keep coming up with new angles, whether it's with the, the static cameras that you keep moving or your drone, and it, it keeps the feel of your show fresh. So does some of that happen while you're shooting? Do you just, Or is it something that is strictly you know and map it out beforehand and have it figured out for that episode? Very little planning. I would say it's uh, very organic, and I would say that this is becoming such a part of me that I don't put a lot of thought into it. I, it's become the camera's become an extension, so everything's on a tripod. I know you guys don't use tripods much uh, for for still photos. I, I'm a little bit shaky, so even when I'm shooting stills, I typically have to use a tripod. But that thing's basically an extension of me now. So if I walk from out the front door of the cabin to look. Yeah, you know, as the sun's rising, the, that that uh, tripod's in my hand, and then I walk over to the sauna that I'm working on right now. It's going along with me, and I drop it, put it in place, flip the legs out, and I just keep walking. And I'll come back and I keep moving it and setting it up. So it's yeah, there's not a lot of forethought, I would say. I mean, there's days that we'll plan, and I do try to plan for lighting. Of course, um, that's always a challenge because you can't move the subject. But um, yeah, I would say it's more organic, more than more than planning. The editing adds a whole nother level too, right? Because if you didn't understand cameras till you guys bought that first one, you probably weren't messing around with editing either. So that's if you're doing a lot of that editing, just the learning curve there is huge. It is. Um, it's definitely when you edit your own work, it definitely forces you to become a better videographer. And you, you, um, one of the things I've, I've paid particular attention to is the story. If I get home or get back to uh, the computer and editing, and I 
and um, you know I walk into a scene and then I don't exit that scene it makes my editing work a lot more challenging so I've gotten to the point where I know that I, I haven't filmed a complete scene while I'm out there um, now that I'm getting to that point and I still make those mistakes it's still lots of times I get back to the computer and I'm missing stuff and then I, I'll sometimes even go back out um, that immediately just get up and go back outside and film that uh, that the rest of that scene so um, editing is editing my own work has taught me to do that but I'm at that point now where you know, I might have to run the camera for 30 minutes because I'm up on a roof or something. And I'm only going to use three seconds, literally, of that of that clip. But uh, at least I know that the sequence is there, so I'm able to literally draw my pull my uh, cursor through each clip and cut it, cut it within a second, and I've moved on. So I I can edit a 30 minute video sometimes in you know a few short hours now. Where at the beginning it was about an hour per minute of editing time to finish product finish video that's totally amazing and exactly what you said is i so i work predominantly in video and the best shooters are editors because they know all the problems <laughs> right they know when somebody when a shooter comes back and they haven't shot everything it just makes their job so much harder but if someone has to put that together and they have to shoot it you pretty much get everything all the way through i noticed you spend a lot of time with audio too you know, that's another learning curve. Just the audio is a big ball of wax. Because Sean's show is <laughs> excellent for the audio. There's so many things he's doing, whether he's walking on the crunchy snow or the river or the wildlife that sounds come off in the background, or, or if he's working with his tools, right? How important is that to a successful vlog? It is very important, and you're clearly very aware of that. Extremely important. I can't. I know it myself. I can't watch a video that has poor audio quality and and that doesn't um, match. So one of the things I, I do get feedback from my audience, and they tell me, um, I, I would say that predominantly they're here not necessarily to learn, but to live vicariously through me is one of the things I get, and to to especially we, I've had this pattern of the last two and a half years uploading a, a video every single Friday. I might do a, other videos, but every Friday. And it's the end of the week, de-stressing time for, for people. And that audio, if they have to continually turn their, their volume up and down because it's screechy or too loud or it just hasn't been balanced properly, it's extremely annoying. And it just loses the, the entire feel of, the, of that video. So I've learned to pay particular attention to it. And there's lots of times I have bad audio. Last week, my camera fell over and uh, Mike came out a little bit, didn't notice it. I had a full day of, of no audio. So then I had to pick some soft music or, or music that, that kept that same mood and dubbed that over. But there's also lots of times where you know wind noises or interference or you know maybe Callie's barking at squirrels or a wolf or something and, or a plane flies over. That ruins the mood, so I have to have a stock of audio that I've collected over the last several years that I can dub over that, and I do that quite often. In fact, I would say audio is probably, I, I'd spend more time editing audio than I do the actual video clips. That's interesting. Makes sense. It's got to, you know, people feel the audio and, and not just the actual natural sounds that are happening. If you're hammering or something, cutting something or walking, sawing or again, the, or the organic nature sounds around you, 
but just the mood. And if you have certain music and stuff for vloggers, I mean, that's paramount, I think, to success. You can play around with that and create mood. And something I want to jump back to just very briefly for our audience, you know, for those people who are using a DSLR to think about vlogging, and a lot of vloggers use those. Uh, there are other tools nowadays that we are starting to use and get excited about, but not necessarily going to replace a DSLR. But as you talked about the articulating screen that comes out the back, if you can, you want a camera where it, what you meant by that, for those that haven't used one, the screen comes right around so you can see yourself on the screen while you're filming, right? So it's a one man or one person job that way. It makes life a lot simpler. And I remember there's another uh, YouTube vlogger that's very successful. And, and I don't know which brand it was. It just came out with a new mirrorless camera, but they did not have an articulating view screen that they could see in the front. And he's like, why? At this day and age, why? You know, because it was clearly part of the target audience were vloggers. You need to be able I to see that. I think that was Canon's new camera that doesn't have a movable. But Sony's doesn't either. You can't flip it around, the Sony that I used. I don't think it. Yeah, I don't think any of them do the mirrors, mirrorless. And I would love to have one for like canoe trips and stuff, a lot lighter and easier to carry. So have you just I've played with the Osmo Pocket? I don't know if I brought that up when I was in Algonquin uh, a few weeks ago with you, but that's something that all three of us have picked up on and are just starting to play with. And there are there's so many elements to that, but it's a fun little device. Well, uh, if you're not familiar with it, then I'll I'll show it to you next time I see you. Yeah, yeah, no, I've been doing my homework and watching all your, uh, listening to all your podcasts and uh, and YouTube videos. So uh, yeah, I'm well aware of it now. I hadn't been prior to you sh you talking about it actually. So I'm, I'm, I'm I will look that up. For any movement, you know the the gimbal quality of it, the the stabilizer is so good, and it's such an easy to use, quick to turn on device. And for YouTube content, quality wise, the 4K is phenomenal my only hang up so far and i haven't used it extensively but i just bought a whole bunch more accessories that i'm looking forward to playing with is it is and i, I know michael's told me i will get used to it or and ron too but it's so small it, you know and and so it's a matter of sistering it up with the phone or, and controlling it and with the, the accessory i haven't put on the on the wheel yet so that'll simplify things. The last vlog I tried to do with just using that, my thumb was like the size of the whole screen. I'm trying to get it to pivot up. It was the wrong technique. So I'm learning too. But the device itself is amazing because it's so portable, so high quality for its size, and so quick to activate and, and get filming with. So for wildlife situations, you know, for canoeing by a moose, just to have it in your chest pocket and be able to pull it out and start filming and telling the story within three or four seconds is you know, game changing for those opportunities. So I'm excited about it, but something to be useful in the woods for you at some point, maybe. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to look into that. Not that I need any excuse to buy any more equipment. <laughs> that's, that's the, uh, there's no, no getting away from that. I don't think. So we talked a little bit about your, well, the camera bodies, but the lens is really important too. Do you find yourself spending the big money on the, the f2.8 the f1.2s so that you can work in those extremely low light conditions so the challenge yeah i mean i my best footage absolutely best absolute best footage is always with the 50. um it's very challenging getting the distance right so like not having that zoom it's um 
Yeah, it, it's challenging. So I have quite a number of lenses just because that's actually the reason we both went, or I went Canon, is my wife really liked that 5D, and then uh, we want to be able to interchange lenses. Uh, so, but with me with that crop sensor on the first camera, the 80D, uh, ended up with a 150 to 600 Sigma for wildlife, um, for a 10 to 18 or something for for wide angle the kit lens on that's an 18 to 135 the big thing though when you're filming yourself is that i'm continually moving uh, in plane so i need a, a silent lens that can track me and there's only a few lenses that canon has that are silent stm lenses so there's the 18 to 135 well, f for the full frame, now that I'm using the full frame, I've got the uh, it's a 24 to 105. There's a 50 that I have, but it's not that silent. And I um, forget what the other one is. But basically, I'm shooting the STM uh, 24 to 105, even on the 1DX when I'm filming myself, be just because of that silent uh, operation. So that, that's all, it's an ongoing challenge, is picking the lenses. It's all those subtleties until you do it, until you create video like Michael does. And I, it's not a world I've been immersed in that often, and I'm learning more and more about it. You wouldn't necessarily know that the noise of a lens is going to get in the way, right? And hear that as it's tracking you. So, I mean, you mount your, what I'm wondering is, you mount your microphone to the camera. I mean, is it I'd probably be a headache to have a microphone off? Or do you ever mic yourself up? Or is that more, I guess it's easier if it's, if it's right in the camera as far as post-production time investment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have an external audio to, um, recorder. Just syncing it, I've found it's just not typically worth the effort. I will use a lav mic if I'm just doing an interview type thing or I'm just talking to the camera, which I have my self-reflections that we, we've call, called it that um, I'll do, especially on my other channel where I'll just talk my life philosophy and so on. So I'll use a lav mic for that, but I've found that working it's impossible to make sure that that it's actually on all the times it turns off after a certain amount of time um, obstructions it's just too difficult to use it all the time but it's something i want to continue to practice with and become better at is is either external or lav mic uh, so i use a road um figure which model mine is it runs off the battery of the camera and i uh, found find it quite effective in most situations you know, and your two channels, just so people know, it's my self-reliance, which is the one that's been most active or longest running with the almost mm -hmm. one million subscribers. Whoa, mind blown. And which is it? it's awesome. And it's the one that you point out that you put on Fridays that people can de-stress and join you in the Canadian wild with the self-reliant lifestyle and see what you're doing. Just kind of go along and, and you don't talk as nearly as frequently in that one it's more just the company of what you're doing correct and and the other correct. channels is is your sean james channel that's how people would find that and we'll put links on our show notes on our website for our listeners and it'll all be there for active links they can find this stuff and that's uh, one where you you talk about your philosophies and beliefs and and what you're doing a little bit more extensively a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Like I just uploaded a video today. So the last week uh, weekend, I had a bunch of guys up and we're building a um, a longhouse on the property on my land, which is pretty cool. But very very different for me as as far as filming and editing. So I just I'm in the middle of editing Friday's video. 
but I uploaded a sort of behind the scenes video that I uploaded on Sean James, which is something I'd like to do as well, or I'll explain what, what I'm doing this week or, um, it's more, more of a vlog, but, uh, that, that channel's starting to grow 68,000 subs, I think on it now. And, um, a lot of people want to hear more. They want to hear, I, I try to give tips on how to achieve this lifestyle as well and how to, um, just be more success, successful no matter what you're doing. And not that I consider myself an expert at anything, but, uh, but I know what's worked for me and what has absolutely not worked for me. And I try to try to share that with, uh, with my audience. And I, and a lot of people do appreciate that. And I enjoy doing that part as well. Yeah. I enjoy both channels for those reasons. Yeah. It's amazing. All the stuff that, I mean, I'm just blown away with starting in 2015 and then, doing what you're doing now i mean there's so many people out there that i work with that don't progress at that level of just learning the camera learning the editing learning the lenses learning the audio there is just so much to it and then like you said earlier it's not the camera it's what you do with it so being able to tell a story by just having all these tools and they just those tools just help you tell that story that's unbelievable it's amazing i can see why you have 800,000 subscribers just because it's super interesting stuff. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's been exciting been fun. And I know and a lot of people do message me and reach out to me on you know, what are they doing wrong or uh, how can they achieve this level of success in social media. And it, it's like everything in life. First, first of all, it helps if you're passionate so you can dedicate enough time to it and enough energy and uh, and stay the course like it. They say you're, you know, one speech or one video or whatever, one photograph away from being discovered. So you have to keep putting the content out. And one thing with today's day in today's day and age on social media, there's a short attention span. And if you're not putting out content regularly, then people are going to move on. I, like I've seen other YouTubers that have been fairly successful and they've had their time slot, and uh, suddenly they go off their a regular schedule and their audience that has allocated that time. Um, to you, you're not fulfilling um, your obligation to them or, or their needs. So they find somebody else. They find another way to fill that time slot. So the consistency is is very important. And really, you have to be passionate about what you're doing in order to do that. So it's staying true to yourself. It's not, um, it's trying to stay as uh, uh, connected to your community, whatever your genre is, and, and trying to keep your name, um, trying to, um, not upset other people in your genre like you'd be more community oriented and whatever you're doing and uh, staying focused on it and just dedicating the time and realizing that maybe it's not uh you know one month or six months or even two year program it's maybe it's a 10-year program that's uh, maybe it's in the 10th year that you achieve the success that you're after but you have to be passionate about it and not interested not just trying to be you know, flipping a quick buck or something, you know, you have to, you have to say this is something I would be doing regardless of whether I was getting paid for it or not and just stick, stick to it. And it's, and even if you're just promoting another business that you're doing, whether it's workshops, if it's in photography or something else that you earn your income on, social media is a great way to build up an audience and a brand around that uh, other passion or other, other means of making it, earning a living. Um, so you need to continue to, um, have your fingers in the, everywhere you have to be out there you have to be visible and you have to continue to be continue to be visible 
There's a there's a lot to that, right? I mean, there's so many layers. The consistency is is paramount. And I think that's the same with any business success. You know, is establishing somebody's reputation, the quality of their product, and what they're delivering, the consistency. But in today's ever changing social media platforms, to try and stay abreast of of how to do that best, even with the consistency, there's so many layers to pay attention to and strategies. And not that I want you to divulge any of that. Um, it's just something that we even in our show. You know, it's a matter of creating a quality content, but the discovery is is a bigger challenge, really, than creating the content. And the story, like you do, the story is is what people get engaged with. But it's a matter of, you know, it's I find it astounding at times that we've been on for up since last July, and and there are other very active uh, nature wildlife photographers in the community will message me and say, "Yeah, I just found your podcast." I'm like, "What? Just now? How's that possible?" Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> It's discovery is such a big part of it and paying attention to this big thing called the Internet because it's I think it's going to stick around and figuring out how to how to get out there on it is is a challenge for anybody. But, you know, fundamentally, you want to be pursuing something you're passionate about because it could take a lot of time, like you're alluding to. It isn't likely to be overnight, like winning a lottery kind of thing to get discovered. So, I mean, people who pick their passions. um you know, have a much better chance of, of fulfilling that for sure. You know, people want to see the real, um, all aspects. Like, I, I, I'm sure, I don't know if you remember, there's probably been other movies. I don't know if you remember uh, Jim Carrey and Truman. Was it Truman? Where, which one was it where he was in a bubble and people watched full time? Um, I do I, I do remember the movie. I'm, just, I'm grasping the straws for the name. Yeah. yeah. I remember the movie. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. All right, I'll, I'll keep going, John. Keep going. There's lots of things that people I think uh, would. I know people. I could probably stream 24 hours a day, and there'd be people watching. So they want to see more. So you guys do awesome content. Like your video and your uh, podcast quality is top notch, and um, you guys are extremely professional and and uh, polished and. You just put out great content. The problem is behind the scenes stuff. Like I'm actually curious. I want to see what you guys do your day to day lives. I want to see you sleeping in that van that you're talking about. I want to see that raw stuff behind what you're doing. That's social media today. That's <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> I was just joking. For for those that aren't seeing this on YouTube, I was pretending to wash my armpits in the shower. That's a little more than Sean wanted. All right. Probably not. I bet your audience would love to see that. <laughs> no, no. But yeah, that's definitely it. That's, and you were right. It is the Truman Show. 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. So <clears throat> I've got a question. How far ahead was it's Dick Prinecki, right? Or Prinecki? I don't know exactly. Dick Prinecki, his, yeah. How far ahead of time was he ahead? I mean, this guy is doing basically YouTube's content in the, what, the 60s? Is that time yeah. right? Yeah, the end of 69 and then, yeah, into the 70s and 80s that he was filming everything. Yeah, absolutely. He's definitely, I would say, the grandfather of the genre. And there's uh, Bill Mason um, doing canoeing, very similar. You see him, the joke, the GoPro, he's got a full uh, film uh, camera on, on his helmet going down, paddling down through rapids, right? So we're not, uh, that's the thing. People think this is new. It's not. It's nothing new. It's just... Um, it's more prevalent now. Yeah, we so have there's lighter... a way to put it out there now. But back then, it was, yeah. a, what, a special on PBS? Or 
I don't even know what he did with this stuff from Lake Clark early on, other than just document his lifestyle. Well, see, here the irony is, and most people don't know this unless you've read his journals, which is the bigger book. Um, and he's got many that are, yeah, that are unpublished. And and he actually set out to do that. To, so immediately when he when he went to um, to Twin Lakes, he filmed it for the purpose of presenting it. He didn't stay there. Most people thought he stayed there year-round. Most most winters he didn't. He was back in Iowa, and um, the intent was to film it and then put on presentations that he would that he would charge for while he was back in civilization. That's how he's monetizing his his retirement there. So very very similar to what we're doing today. So um, yeah, I mean he's the he's the forefather. I would say of what we're doing or what I'm doing at least. So what would it be like if you went to that? To his cabin, is that a place that is on your radar? <laughs> I think you know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want to go I mean, there with you. I've been to Lake Clark. Actually, Ron it. and Missy and myself, we've been to Lake Clark to film bears, but not where the cabin's at. The Lake Clark is so big. I mean, we go to the coastal area where we film bears, but I've never been to the actual lake and where he actually has his cabin. And I think it would just be amazing just to go That's check it out. That's definitely a bucket list. Well, to, yeah, it's a bucket list, uh, list trip for sure for me. It's uh, to do that and also, of course, the wildlife. I mean, uh, Alaska is the last frontier for me as well as for most people to, who are outdoorsmen. That's for sure. So, yeah, that's absolutely on my list. Now, is that content that you would want to put on your channel, that that – experiential kind of stuff and your feelings when you actually go to something like that or is that something that you would rather just keep to yourself and not have that experience be put out there part of the dream that i'm living that other people are recognizing is having the time to do what you want to do and to, to show that and and also the the nature part of it so not civilized so I feel that my audience would love to see anything that I do in the outdoors and anything that's um, related to what I'm doing. I did a video last uh, fall trip. My wife and I did to Lake Superior. It was just, it was just, we were just following basically the fall colors and canoeing and fishing and everything. And it was very well received by the audience. And I think they would like to see me doing more of that, relaxing and just enjoying the freedom that I have that most people don't. So absolutely, that's that's uh, the direction of the channel, or at least it's going to continue or become a bigger part of the channel is to actually get out there, show the wild places, show the wild animals, and show um, what we need to do to preserve that as well. That, that's that's the next step, I think, in my evolution as a person is to, sh to show the, um, you know, what we're, we could be missing or what we could be destroying if we don't start paying more attention. I know three guys that can help you out in Alaska. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard there might be some, <laughs> a couple of experienced guys that could do that. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do that. I think it's People. interesting, and I think it's exactly what you said. And I, I figured that would be your answer, but I just wanted to hear it from you. I think people just want to live vicariously through you because what are the chances that they'll get to do that? But if you can expose them to any of that it's an educational educational opportunity for them to to learn and grow and and hopefully one day make it there themselves yeah absolutely keep that dream alive how many of us have lived vicariously through pernucky's journals and through the books yeah. and then yeah. to to be able to see it happen live 
I think you're absolutely right. I think that's what people relate to because you can definitely relate when you read those stories and you can relate on a day-to-day basis because you can go from one day to the next, but to see that happen live, you know, like your channel presents, I think that's an opportunity that, you know, there are a lot of people who are envious of that lifestyle and there are a lot of people who can relate with your desire and your passion to be out there. And that's, you know, that's what does it for us as well. Our desire is to be out there every day. Um, unfortunately, you know, being out there every day, taking, collecting images doesn't, isn't necessarily everything that we have to do, but yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely that tie in with people that I think resonates with more than even just the 800,000 that are on your channel now. I think that's, you know, that's why it's a magnet and that's what we hope to share as well is to be able to share that passion that each of us carry, you know, to a, a greater audience. Well, so I think we often forget, and I think this has been one of my tips to a lot of local YouTubers or social media um, influencers or want to be influencers, is that it's a global, global audience. Uh, last year when I did a time-lapse video of me building the cabin initially, was picked up by a bunch of Facebook pages, uh, some big ones. And the last time I counted those, there was over 200 million views just on that one video alone. And uh, a lot of the more people, um, I mean, majority were from from uh, countries that um, this is so foreign to them, even the snow, like, like I'm tired of this. We're all, I think we're all tired of the snow this year, but that's so fascinating to half the half of the audience around the world. So, what you guys are experiences experiencing, and what I experience, and I joke about this a little bit, is that um, you know this bushcraft genre that's kind of popped up on social media, probably as a result of Ray Mears in the UK, is um, you know uh, people wanting to to um, experience what we do and i joke that us canadians just do that every weekend it's just just part of it's just <laughs> our life right it's nothing special about what we're doing but we because we don't because we only associate with other people doing that we don't we forget how um unique it is and what uh, an opportunity we have here in north america and in canada in my my case in mark's case so it's a matter of sharing everything some of those little things that you don't think are worth sharing the you know the chickadee the little red squirrel the the things that we are seeming insignificant to us, the audience is like blown away by that stuff. They want to see more and more of the wildlife and the different plants and all the other things that we just take for granted. Yeah, that's a good point. Very true, especially with the global audience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like well, I get a lot of comments, uh, like you're cutting trees down, isn't? Are you going to jail now? Because <laughs> they live in country. <laughs> <laughs> where there's no trees left, right? It's, yeah, it's it's very interesting. They hear the perspective or get perspective. A very different landscape. Mm-hmm. Well, and people have likened you to a modern day Richard Pernacki. So I think having you go to that cabin and hearing your take on it, given your skills and what you've done, would be very interesting. I'd love to hear that, and I know I would expect your audience would too. It you know it'd be the tour or the firsthand experience with the right person. To go there with mm-hmm. you know because you definitely appreciate that lifestyle and, and understand it in a way that would interpret it very well the editors or the uh, whoever's publishing their book has asked me to write the forward in the next edition of um, alone in the wilderness i think i think that would be quite an honor and 
course, visiting the, the location would be, to, to me, a prerequisite to, to doing something like that. So absolutely. No kidding. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Let's, let's uh, see if we can help map that out. Done. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to, I mean, it's something that as even wildlife photographers, you know, I encourage our audience. Video is such a big part, such an accessible part of, of what we can do now to share our stories with family and friends on any trips people do, whether it's a canoe trip somewhere, whether it's a wildlife photography trip, a workshop, whatever people go on to take video and, and but there's that side of it there's the behind the scenes the there's the first perspective of how to do this and then when people start doing it realizing all these other components i mean on our podcast we've talked about b-roll 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 and all these things to create a great video even one is simply put together in iMovie to share with your family and friends but we encourage our listeners to do that to share the story on top of the still images and, and talking to you today has been very informative and inter interesting to hear how you've accomplished that so well and especially somebody who's really self-taught with it both in in the video side the storytelling side the post-production and clearly i mean you're a great storyteller and you relate that well through your video content and and uh, that's why it resonates around the globe so i really appreciate you taking the time well, I appreciate being. I mean, I'm just I'm new. I've been following your work for a number of years, or however long. I don't know how long. It's been a year at least, and I've been very impressed. And wanted to meet up with you just to see uh, where you're getting these fantastic photographs and learning a little bit from you. So that's been I've been I've appreciate that as well. Uh, but I want to make one po quick point on that uh, video, the uh, filming versus the photography. So the fact that I use a DSLR. Um, I switch back and forth. There's very few things that I, in the field, photograph or film that I don't photograph as well. So I shoot everything in manual, and I'm flipping that switch back and forth between film and, and photograph continuously. And I think that's one of the great things about just carrying a DSLR is that you can capture both. And uh, uh, to me, there's nothing like the uh, seeing the uh, action that it, it, you know that a static images image can't always convey is that. Um, emotion in the situation or whatever the behavior of that animal and that's kind of the funny thing to me is i think the three of us are intrigued not only by your passion your lifestyle but just everything that you do the the methodology is what i was really intrigued with just seeing how you do that all you know on your own self-produced and so for our audience i'm glad you were patient and, and bared with us through this because it is it, it's a unique topic for us and a uh, unique opportunity for sure for you to take the time to be with us. It gives me hope being the guy still stuck in the corporate world. These guys are both laughing because they know we have this discussion often. So, yeah, no, thank you very much for being with us. Well, I appreciate it. Like I said, I, I'm, I look up to what you guys are doing as well, and I'm curious to um, explore, uh, learn more from you guys about how you're monetizing your your passions. Like I, I find that fascinating. In fact, I'd like started to record some podcasts that I haven't uploaded yet, but that's in the, my future as well. I'll be adding a, a hope to have a full podcast um, channel going in the next six months or so, and and I'm very interested in talking to you guys more about that, about uh, how you've how you're living your lives and and. You know, just uh, you know what the uh, the challenges this 
in this day and age of monetizing a, a photography career or a videography career. So definitely want to have you guys on. We'd love to do it. I'm looking forward to talking with you with potentially other projects or, or fun we can find in the future. Definitely talk about Alaska more after this. Mm. <laughs> well, stick, stick around. Stick around, my friend. All right. Well, I want to thank Sean James for being on our podcast today. And we'll have links in our show notes at wildandexposed.com where you can find uh, his YouTube channels directly through there. Uh, we'll also put up, uh, we did this once before on a podcast, but we'll put up Richard Pernecki's One Man Wilderness uh, link there again because of the content of today's podcast. Yeah. You can see more of our, our podcast team's work on our social media feeds on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at wildandexposed.com. I want to send out a special thank you to Missy McKenzie for all that she does on our production behind the scenes to make this podcast as good as it is. And remember, no, no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, or if it's on our YouTube channel, to hit that subscribe or follow button. And as Sean James has taught me as well, to hit that little bell so you get a notification when we do upload something new on the YouTube channel. And please give us a positive review, a five-star rating, or a thumbs up, because those allow us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>